Sam. And, and we're... we're... <laughs> I thought we were going to switch off this week. That's what we agreed to last week. Fine. And we're just here to cause chaos. One day we're going to get this. Yeah. That, that sounded smoother in my head, honestly. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Yeah. It's the last week of Pride Month. And yes, we are it going. Is. Yeah, and we are going to do something that has nothing to do with Pride Month. <laughs> to be fair, of the four episodes we've done, exactly half of them have been about queer women, so. And the first one we did not realize was Pride Month. <laughs> but this week is Nellie Bly. Ooh. I saw a drunk history about her. I also saw that drunk history for my research. And then I saw the other one. There's two. There's two. I'm yes. sure I've seen them both, but I can't remember. <laughs> I've seen a lot of Drunk History. Drunk History is very entertaining. It is. All right. So do you know? So you know a little bit about Nellie Bly? I know like the overview. Cool. Well, first off, Nellie Bly is her pen name. Her real name is Elizabeth Cochran Seaman, like the sea. You know what? I would also use a different name if my name were Cochrane Siren. <laughs> <laughs> yeah! Nellie Bly actually comes from like a famous uh, folk song from the 1800s, which was called Nellie Bly by Stephen Foster. And you know, it's not Cochrane Seaman. Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to get over that anytime soon. <laughs> although, she married Mr. Seaman. So she so, chose that. So she chose, and then she chose to hyphenate? Yeah, well, she just kind of made her maiden name her middle name, and people just said, all right, we're going to go the full name. Wow. I mean- Honey, I feel like if your last name's Cochran, and you're marrying someone whose last name is Seaman, you gotta pick one or the other. <laughs> Can't go both there. <laughs> Honestly, she was known professionally as, like, Bly, so... So she chose neither. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Respect. <laughs> so there wasn't much reason. Anyway, she was born May 5th, 1864, to her father, George Michael Cochran, and mother, Mary Jane Kennedy, in small-town Pennsylvania. Any now, relationship to, like, the Kennedys? No, probably not. Oh, that's too bad. I know. She was her father's 13th child. Yes. Why? He had 10 children with his first wife, and then married a second wife, and proceeded to have five more children. I don't like that. <laughs> too many. Wait, so she had younger siblings after that, too? Yes, she had two younger siblings. Ugh. That makes my ovaries hurt. Why would a man even want 15 children? And, like, this was back in the day when, like, being a father was really just, like, paying a bunch of money and, like, not spending time with your kids. So, like, he didn't even, like, it was just expensive. Was it just bragging rights? Maybe. Alright, she had a fun nickname as a child. They were She was called Pinky, or Pink, because she wore pink all the time, which is adorable. That is adorable. Yeah, good for her. Her father died when she was six. I guess he, after having 15 children, he just decided he was done. Like, yeah, I've that, done my duty. 
That 15th one couldn't have been very big at that point <laughs> if his 13th was six. <laughs> so he was really having kids like right up to the end. Yeah. And then he peaced out. Oof. <laughs> My so... ovaries hurt so much. <laughs> so then things get worse for her once her father's dead because her father, you know, had money. And I'd her hope mom... so with 15 kids. Yeah. And her mom did not. So her Oof. mom remarries, but the relationship turns into this abusive, terrible relationship. And no one directly said that, like, that was a big reason she was so into feminism, but, like, it had to be. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, it is. The first time she gets, like, on the map for feminism is in 1885. So a newspaper column entitled... Quote, what girls are good for in the Pittsburgh Dispatch. And guess what they thought girls were good for, Sam? Making babies. That is exactly right. Congratulations. Hey! <laughs> yes, uh, it reported that girls were, were principally for birthing children and keeping house. So, you know, that's terrible. Awful. Apparently, the writer even, like, low-key supported the practice of girl-child infanticide. So terrible, just terrible, terrible stuff. I don't like that. So Elizabeth read this and was so enraged that she wrote a response under the pseudonym Lonely Orphan Girl. <laughs> so she sends in this letter being like, you are wrong and here's why. <laughs> <laughs> and the editor George Madden read this. And he was like, find me, lonely orphan girl. And she did? <laughs> and she did. Uh, did she throw hands? <laughs> no, no, no. So he's like, that was, that was so impressive. I want you uh. to write a full article and we'll put it in the paper. So she you writes. You know, while I'm sure that was better for her and her career in the long run, I wanted her to throw hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the guy didn't write the paper. Now, Still. he published it, but... Yeah. Yeah. She deserved to throw some amount of hands. She did deserve to throw more hands than she did. So she writes her first article, which is titled The Girl Puzzle, and it was about how divorce affected women. The answer is badly. Yeah, I mean, this was a time period where women, like, couldn't own property or, like, have jobs, so, like... Exactly. So, pro again, not a direct result of her mom being stuck in an abusive relationship, but... But, like, not not a direct result. Mm -hmm. So in it, she argues for the reform of divorce laws, which did not happen for a very long time, but good on her for getting the ball rolling. She tried. Yeah. We didn't fix that till, like, the 70s. Isn't that crazy? It, it's still, like, a little bit yeah. of a shit show sometimes. <laughs> But this article was so well-received that she got a full-time job with the Pittsburgh Dispatch, and she was off. Starting her, her journalism. Heck yeah. That's a girl boss. Uh-huh. Even though we don't approve of the term girl boss, because it's just a... Uh, we don't? It is part of a capitalist liberal system of feminism. We don't want to replace our current male oppressors with female oppressors. We want to get rid of all oppression. Okay, but have you seen the girl boss alignment chart? Yes, obviously we are all Ursula. 
Oh, I'm not Ursula. Oh, wait, who are you? <laughs> Hold on, let me pull it up. <laughs> Jackie, like, really judged me for my... But I think I align more with the, like, neutral radical was my position. I am now going to explain the girl boss alignment <laughs> chart because otherwise this makes no sense. So... <laughs> There are three categories on top. We have purist. purist. I have pulled up so I can do it if you want. <laughs> Let's see how this goes. <laughs> purist, neutral, and radical. And purist is like, it has to be a woman. Now, I'm assuming we're trans and NB inclusive. Neutral, we're going with, okay, it doesn't have to be a woman, but they have to be effeminate. You know? And that's where I align myself. Oh no. <laughs> Why? What's wrong with that? <laughs> Just one of the choices in that I think was Scar. Yeah. From I the think Lion Scar King. from the Lion King is a girl boss. If you are true neutral, that is what you end up with. <laughs> and you know what? That's kinda why I picked the neutral category. <laughs> and then radical is just anyone can be a girl boss, regardless of gender or lack thereof. <laughs> And if you end up in that category, Joe Biden is an option. <laughs> well, on the other side. Yeah, then there's how we define boss. Now, either, either to be like the boss of a, a company. That's a purist. Like, yeah, that's purist. Neutral is just any position of power. And then radical is a aura of power, if you will. But no job required. Yes. So, for instance, Ursula doesn't technically have a job, but she's a girl boss. However, if you are a true radical, that means the Grand Canyon is a girl boss. See, like, Kamala Harris is a girl boss. And I... Yes. And I mean that in a derogatory way. I like Kamala Harris. Yeah, but I don't like her support for cops. But anyway... She used to be my city's prosecutor. Sure, she did some sketchy things there. She did. <laughs> okay, so, as you were saying, Nellie Bly is a girl boss. We just did, like, a full five minutes on the girl boss alignment. Of course. Chart. Okay, keep going. <laughs> Jackie's gonna love this episode. <laughs> so she was like, I am now a serious journalist, and she went straight into women's factories and started doing a series of investigative articles about how they were being mistreated, which was then responded to by the factory owners complaining to the newspaper and demanding that they put a stop to her. And yeah. I'm gonna go with day one. <laughs> yeah, so she's like out here, you know, fighting capitalism, and yet the man's just keeping her down. The Pittsburgh Dispatch says, all right, now you got to do the boring women's stories. Go go talk about fashion and society and gardens. Lame. I know. So, of course, Nellie doesn't stand for this. She very dramatically leaves, like just quits her job and goes to Mexico for six months. Heck yeah. I think more protests should be done. By leaving and going to Mexico for six months. You know what? Same. Yeah. However, this was not a vacation. She was out there writing articles about, like, Mexican culture, specifically about the Mexican government, which 
was under the dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, Mexican Revolution. I got some. <laughs> oh no, that's gonna be a hyperfixation later, isn't it? Uh, I recently listened to like a four-part podcast on the Mexican Revolution. Porfirio Diaz is a key player. <laughs> At one point, some Napoleon nephew tries to become the oh king my God, of Mexico. Yes. Uh, and his wife was this like super insane princess, and she had a haunted mirror. It... Oh, wait, wait, was she the one who like basically made a replica of her dead husband and carried it with her through the rest of her life? Yes, she did do that. I totally forgot about that. There are so many other insane things she did that like that's not even a fact that's in my head. <laughs> A local journalist was arrested by the Mexican government for criticizing the government, and she's like, hey, stop. So the Mexican authorities were like, hey, no, <laughs> we will arrest you. So she said, not if I'm not here, and left. So then she goes all out. She's like, Diaz is a tyrannical czar, and he's the worst and he's against free press, which I mean is true. So she's going all out. Good for her. Yeah, I support her. So by then, she's in New York trying to find a job. She's knocking on doors for four months. And people are like, huh, a woman? And you know, so that's fun. Finally, she manages to get into the office of Joseph Pulitzer. No one oh. told me how she got in there. The Probably she asked nicely. That's how you get anywhere. Honestly, yeah. The quote was she talked her way into the, his office. So she probably put on a cute skirt, flipped her hair a little bit, and was like, pretty please, and like batted her eyelashes. Oh my god. Because you know what? The world nerfed women enough that we're allowed to use our femininity however we want to. Fine. That is a hill I will die on. Okay. But I don't find it empowering. It's not empowering. It's just sometimes a necessity in a male-dominated world. <sighs> so anyway, she gets in there. Joseph Pulitzer owns the newspaper, The New York World. And she's like, give me a job. And he's like, all right, listen. How would you like to go to an insane asylum? And she's <laughs> like, what? And then he elaborates. He's like, okay, so the Blackwell Island Women's Insane Asylum is crazy, and something's going on with it there, and we want someone to go undercover and, you know, find this, figure out what's going on. And she's like, okay. So she agrees to this. She's like, it's time to go pretend to be crazy. Let's go. So... She doesn't know how to pretend to be crazy. Because I guess, <laughs> you know, they took all the crazy people and they hid them away in these asylums. So there wasn't much to go off of. So she decided the best way to practice was to... She just made weird facial expressions in the mirror for a night. And said, yeah, that'll do it. You know, back in that day, she could have just told her husband she didn't want to have sex with him. And like that counted as insane. Ooh, scathing critique. <laughs> However, she was not married at the time, so. <laughs> ah, well, just, they threw women in insane asylums for, like, e everything. 
Oh, that's what she found out, too. <laughs> she checked herself into a boarding house. And she's refusing to go to bed. She's yelling about how everyone else in the boarding house looks crazy. And they're like, that's something a crazy person would say. So eventually the boarding house person calls the police and the police take her, take her in. And then she's like, I don't remember. I have amnesia. I am <laughs> she's basically saying everything except I am crazy. Nice, nice. So they get she put way too much effort into this. She could have been way less crazy and they still would have sent her away. Honestly, probably. But you know, she had to she had to ensure they would send her. She has an examination and the doctor declares her, oh yep, she's hopeless, send her to the asylum. Now, later, when this was all coming out in the article, after the article was published, they're like, hey, how did you trick a doctor? How did you get in there? Who let you, who said that you were insane? And she was like, you know, my doctor was way more interested in the attractive nurse working there than me. <laughs> oh, honey. So, so yeah, easier than you might think. This was around the same time that doctors thought that the way to treat hysteria was to, like, invent vibrators, right? Well, we're in the 18 late 1800s. Oh, no. So. Sorry. We're, that's, like, the early 1900s I'm thinking of. Yeah. So this does lead to some, you know, good old-fashioned mental health reform. So maybe that was how they reformed it. Oh, I hope not. Anyway. <laughs> I hope they did better. I mean, based on the fact that I'm pretty sure it was like 1930 that a doctor invented a vibrator because that's how you treat hysteria. Um, I don't think they do that much better. <laughs> well, yeah, but with the distracted horny doctor, <laughs> she is quote unquote involuntarily committed to Blackwell. Very voluntarily committed. So when she gets to the asylum, she's immediately drops the act, but no one cares. Of course not. Yeah, so she's there acting like a normal, sane human being, and they're citing her normal behavior as signs of mental illness. Particular example is her not wanting to be there. (laughs) So she's like, can I talk to someone to get out of here and they're like that's what a crazy person would say so this didn't go well (laughs) and there were plenty of women she was talking to who she was like also sure didn't belong there apparently uh, particularly egregious cases are women who just didn't speak English oh gotta love that yeah so they would talk to the doctor and they'd be like, yeah, that's not a language, even though it would be, like, German or something. Ah, uh, but xenophobia. Uh, it's yeah. right, right in the heart. Mm-hmm. There were others who would, like, you know, just had, like, a breakdown and were better. Like, people who might have needed actual treatment, but instead were here in this hellscape. Oh, God, imagine, like, having an anxiety attack and ending up there. Oh, God. That was, like, that was their mental health uh, control back then. Like, either act normal or we're gonna send you away. Uh, Ah, the past. 
Gotta love it. <laughs> and this is like in that time between actual mental health services and when they used to just send people with mental health issues to like a spa. I don't... I, that's a very romanticized view. Oh no, early 1800s, they like actually, they like had these spas. They weren't helpful, but they were literally just like, you went and you sat there for the rest of your life pretty much with the other crazy people instead of this like torture. Hmm. <laughs> There was a big one in South Carolina that I read a paper about one time. All right. Well, that sounds so much nicer than what these women were going through. Yeah. Uh, the nurses were abusive, both verbally and physically. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Got to keep that consistent. They were given spoiled and rotten food. So, fun. Uh, they, if they had any dangerous patients, they'd just tie them up with rope. Which, not great. I also don't exactly trust these abusive nurses' idea of dangerous. So we're going to do an actual quote from the article by Nellie Bly in 1887. What accepting torture would produce insanity quicker than this treatment? Here is a class of women sent to be cured. I would like the expert physicians who are condemning me for my action, which has proven their ability to take a perfectly sane and healthy woman, shut her up, and make her sit from 6 a.m. until 8 p.m. on straight back benches. Do not allow her to talk or move during these hours. Give her no reading. Let her know nothing of the world or its doings. Give her bad food and harsh treatment, and see how long it will take to make her insane. Two months would make her a mental and physical wreck. I couldn't see enjoying- I couldn't see, like, living through that for, like, a week. Yeah, and she survived for ten days, but these poor women were just trapped in there. Oh my god. Yeah, and she said that the worst parts were the baths. Okay, so this was a whole thing. First off, they wouldn't clean out the bath water. They would just have bath water and then- we would have one woman after the other bathing. Ew. So that's gross. Uh, when they did clean out the bath water, they wouldn't even bother to clean at the tub. They'd just throw more water in there. So not much better. The water is, of course, freezing. Mm. Why? Why wouldn't it be? Yeah, the nurses are just, like, roughly scrubbing them. I'm, I'm imagining them basically hitting them with brushes. Patients were forced to share towels... But then you know that they, they didn't do a good job with making sure the ones with the skin conditions didn't immediately hand over their towel to people with who are healthy. So, you know, just disease all around. Mm, yeah, sounds sanitary. Mm-hmm. So after 10 days of this, and she's been particularly taking notes, uh, the New York World newspaper gets her released, and she publishes her article called 10 Days in a Madhouse. Now, this was immediately a hit. She became famous. She actually did succeed in getting the asylum to implement reforms. And a grand jury was called to raise the budget for mental health, and they uh, called for more thorough examinations. Wow. I'm amazed yeah. they actually did something. Yeah, there was actual change. That's not usually how these stories go. I know. So, good for Nellie Bly. Great for Nellie Bly. Snaps for her. Mm-hmm. I don't think I actually mentioned when she got her name. No, you have not yet. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, after writing her first article, 
uh, under the pseudonym Lonely Orphan Girl, her uh, editor was like, hey, maybe please call yourself literally anything, anything else. else. <laughs> you know what? Fair. So she went with Nellie Bly from the song. Uh, it was supposed to be spelled exactly like the song, but instead of a Y, they put it, someone misspelled it with an IE and it just stuck. I like it with the IE. Yeah. It's nice. It looks, it looks sleeker. Yeah. And from then on, she was Nellie Bly. No one called her Elizabeth. That's a lame name. I like the name Elizabeth. Okay, fine. Elizabeth's a great, it's a great name. It's very regal. Yes, everyone likes the name. <laughs> My sister's gonna be mad at me because that's her middle name. Ugh. <laughs> Love you, Allison. Anyway. Does she actually listen to this? I feel like she doesn't. I told her to. Whether or not she listens to me when I tell her to do things, it's like listen to me for longer. Allison, if you actually listen to this show, text me <laughs> so I can know. Does she have your number? Yes. What? What do you guys talk about? Mothman. We've texted once. Moving on. <laughs> so this was such a this article was such a hit that she essentially created like a new era of journalism called stunt girl journalism. And essentially, this is exactly what you think it is, in which girls would perform like investigative stunts to write about, which I mean, not the best thing, but it helps women get into mainstream reporting. I feel like, you know that meme with the small domino that goes to the giant domino? Exactly. I feel like you could do that with this to Gloria Steinem becoming a Playboy bunny. Oh my god, you're right. <laughs> Didn't even think about that. <laughs> Connecting the episodes. <laughs> and she also like put a spotlight on, you know, the rights of marginalized women. You know, if one ar one article was hugely success successful, then, like, people could write other articles and actually raise some awareness. Good so, for you know. her. Yeah. So, that was uh, her, like, big entrance into mainstream. So, after a few years later, she's still working for the New York world. Because, you know, it's a good gig. She's good at it. Yeah, and that was like the biggest newspaper in the country at the time, I think. Exactly. So she read recently read the book Around the World in 80 Days, you know, by Jules Verne, in which a man- This is what the drunk history was about. Oh, that's the one you saw. <laughs> yeah. I saw the other one about the asylum. I think I saw both, but like, this is the one I remember. <laughs> so yeah, so she goes straight up to her editor and she's like, hey, I want to do this Around the World in 80 Days thing. And he's like, what? You? A woman? You can't do that. You'd need, like, protection by a man. And <laughs> think of all the luggage you would need. So many bags. Oh, and yeah, she's... for all the dresses. Exactly. So she's just standing there blank-faced. And finally, the man, uh, the editor finishes his long, stupid speech with, No one but a man could do this. To which Nellie Bly responds, very well. Start the man and I'll start the same day for some other newspaper and beat him. <laughs> She's so, such a mood. Iconic. 
But essentially, she threatens to leave for another paper. And considering she is like a household name by this point, she could easily do that. But that convinced them, and they're like, all right, let's send her off. So this whole uh, adventure starts at 9.40 a.m. on November 14th, 1889. She is traveling the world in the east direction. So she leaves New York to England. And a couple other things. She's only 25 at this time. What? Yes. Damn, she, girl. Yes. She is a 20-something who is already one of the world's most accomplished journalists and traveling the world in under 80 days. And she only took with her one bag. I mean, at that point, it's a pride thing. Like, she I mean, could yeah. only take one bag. <laughs> Just to stick it to the man. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, a rival newspaper, a rival magazine, Cosmopolitan, you know, that one. Yeah. Wait, Cosmo? Yes. Cosmo was only three years old at the time. And they weren't all sex tips? No. They're like, we need to get on the map too. So they heard about this. And this, they like got wind of it like the day before. And they tell one of their workers, Elizabeth Bisland, that on the same day that she's gonna go do this. So she gets, she has, has six hours. Oh my god. <laughs> she's like, she has six hours notice that this is what she's doing for the next few months of her life. <laughs> and then she, they send her off on the same day and she's going west. So now we've got like an actual race as opposed to a, you know, challenge set by a fictional character of Phineas Fogg. Yeah, so now, now we got drama. I'm sure that's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> and I'm sure they're both completely aware that this is happening. Nellie was not. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so... Nellie gets over to England, she gets word that Jules Verne wants to meet her in France, and she is, like, she's so starstruck by the idea that she actually deviates her schedule uh, by a little bit, even though it's meticulously planned, to rush down there to France to see him. And basically, the conversation goes like this. Hi, I'm Jules Verne. My wife and I stand you so hard. Good luck. <laughs> I feel like if he was a fan, he could have come to England and been like, yo, I know you got a time crunch, like, hi. You know? Ah, that would require a man making allowances for a woman. Nah. <laughs> Your computer makes so much noise. Maybe I should get one of those liquid cooling things. Probably. That sounds like a lot of work. I can just hear it. I'm sorry, it sounds like an airplane. It does. Uh, I should learn how to edit that out. If it you also do. sounds like a lot of work. I believe in you. You should do it. Oh god, okay. You can do that and you can learn how to Twitter. Oh no. Twitter? We agreed. Slash I told you. <laughs> we agreed by me telling you and you not saying no. <laughs> I should learn how to Twitter. Could be fun. One of us has to learn how to Twitter, and I'm already doing a lot of other stuff. Okay, I'll learn how to Twitter. <laughs> okay. Can I write radical stuff that makes other people uncomfortable? 
I told you that I wasn't gonna look at the Twitter, but if anyone complained, I will make you stop. Okay, fine. <laughs> so that's your level of radical. You can be as radical as you want as long as no one complains. <laughs> Let's say how everyone complains on Twitter. As long as no one complains to me. Oh, okay. So she's, you know, still doing her worldwide travel thing. Uh, she's sending telegrams and writing letters, and like that's how the New York's back. New York's getting the news. Whenever you know, there's like some delays, so the New York world is like, we need to keep people interested. So they start a sweepstake, where people have to guess like to the minute how long this thing's gonna take, <laughs> and it is wildly popular, like five hundred thousand people have a stake in this. Wow. Yeah, and that combined with, of course, the fact that she's still racing Bisland. <laughs> and still unaware that she's racing Bisland? Oh yeah, she doesn't find out till later. Oh great. You know, she's traveling, she goes to the Suez Canal, she goes to Sri Lanka, she gets to Singapore, and Singapore the, the most exciting thing on this trip happens, Sam. She buys a miniature fez-wearing monkey named McGinty. Oh, the animal rights abuses. Ugh. Sam! <laughs> it was a monkey, he wore a fez, and his name was McGinty. And he was probably drugged. And that's adorable. <sighs> Adorable's definitely a word for it. Oh my god. <laughs> You're gonna crush the joy of that. <laughs> you took a miniature fez-wearing monkey and decided, nah. Let's make it sad. You crush the joy of random things I say all the time. <laughs> so I see you're still mad about me insulting girl bosses. <laughs> Finally, she gets to Hong Kong. Where... This is where she actually learns about the fact that she's in a race. Finally. <laughs> and then she and she gets told that by saying, Hey, I know you. You're the girl that's doing the race. You know you're losing? And she's <laughs> like, what? <laughs> she's like, I'll have you know I'm ahead of schedule. <laughs> Phineas Fogg could never. And he's like, no, no, the other woman. <laughs> I like how it went from no woman could ever do this to two women are doing this faster than the book. Exactly. <laughs> well, Cosmo also had to send a woman because, you know, fairness. Also, Cosmo is a woman's magazine. And I'm yeah. assuming even back then it was a woman's magazine. <laughs> no, absolutely not. It was oh, wait, staffed really? by men, but they had exactly one woman on staff. And they're like, this will work. But was it like targeted to women? You know what? I don't know. This was when it was only three years old. and They may not have found their niche yet. Okay. When did they start just doing, like, sex tips and hair and makeup? In astrology. This sounds like a future hyperfixation. History <laughs> okay. of Cosmo. I mean, because it is, nowadays, sex tips, hair, makeup, and astrology. Yes. <laughs> and it became famous because of Elizabeth Bisland and Nellie Bly. <laughs> so finally... She's actually told about this. And she's like, well, I'm... She's kind of bummed by that. 
Admittedly, she's, she, like, claims she didn't care too much. She's like, listen, I am going to beat this 80 days thing. Whether or not she can do it as well is her business. Uh, but she also is still, like, in Hong Kong. She goes to visit a leper colony. And I tell you what, that does not make her feel better. No, of course it doesn't. It also can't be good for her time. I don't know. <laughs> Like, I understand that's very on brand for her, but, like, you've got a time crunch here, honey. Keep moving. <laughs> so she gets on the boat, and she's off. And meanwhile, Bisland has been doing better. Okay? She's slightly... she's probably not stopping to talk to Jules Verne and go to leper colonies. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> So she's, like, a few days ahead, actually. But she gets to England, and she's like, Alright, I want to get on my super-fast steamer ship. And they say, Ah, you missed it. And oh, she's no. like, What? So she has to get on a boring, slower steamer ship. So that kind of that kind of wrecks this whole thing. However, Nellie Bly gets herself to America. Uh, she's on the West Coast, and Pulitzer gets her a record-breaking private train. <laughs> and it's like a celebration. Like, the train's going, and everyone is on the side of the tracks just screaming, like, Go, Nellie! Oh, that's kind of <laughs> nice. It is adorable. <laughs> and she gets the- she arrives back in New Jersey on January 25th, 1890, at 3.51 p.m., making it 72 days. That's right. You go, girl. Exactly. And Bisland arrives five days later, which is like about 77 days. So still less still than 80. Great. Yeah. They both still beat the book character that they were told they couldn't beat. So. Exactly. And Jules Byrne was proud of both of them. I'm sure. She writes this huge expose. She it's eventually it's compiled into a book that's called Around the World in 72 Days because they're not creative with names. <laughs> I mean it's what she did. Yeah. It's yeah. accurate. <laughs> but a little while after this, she decides to quit reporting for a bit and she starts writing novels and she bangs out eleven in six years. Yeah, that's exactly. A lot. Damn. Mm -hmm. So this was between 1889 and 1895. Although, although, to make it even more impressive, in 1893, she was also back to reporting. That's 11 books while having another job for part of it. Okay. I yeah. feel incompetent. Mm -hmm. And this is also pretty interesting. So they thought that the novels were lost and that we would never find them. However, some author named David Blixt, like, discovered them a few months ago. Oh, like, that's in cool. In January 2021, this man, like, found the books, essentially got them reprinted, and Where so- Where did you find them? Oh, I actually had to read a whole article about this. So, he was trying to find out, like, how much she got paid- for like one of her articles and instead he fell down this rabbit hole kind of like how we do 
effect of, <laughs> of her, like, of her work and, like, what happened to it. And he realizes that there's this, that they have, like, this terrible microfilm of some of the books. And he's like, why does this microfilm suck? And they're like, well, listen, we don't know. So he goes down to the library where the microfilm was, like, taken. And he's like, I'm here to figure this out. And he's like, oh, they just took bad pictures. Or whatever <laughs> they do for microfilm. And so he there, like, painstakingly, like, transcribed every word. And uh, put it in a nice clear format. And you know what? Now we got ourselves some books. Damn, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Go him. Exactly. Is he a girl boss? <laughs> Am I being punished? Yes. <laughs> anyway, 1895. She marries Robert Seaman. He's a millionaire manufacturer. However, this kind of squicked me out. She was only 31 at the time. And this man was 73. So gross. I don't like that. Me neither. So then she goes into business, working with her husband. And when her husband dies nine years later in 1904, she just takes over the company. You know what? You go, girl. Yeah. Girl boss. <laughs> So she actually has a few patents, which is cool. Like, she has a patent for a redesigned milk can and, like, manufacturing stuff. Ooh, tell me yeah. more. You don't know what the patents are for, do you? No, I can send you the numbers, but, like... Ellen, you gotta know who your audience is, and your audience is me. <laughs> this is, like, the least interesting thing she did. She has patents in manufacturing. She single-handedly <laughs> revitalized mental health. I'm a mechanical engineer. <laughs> All the other <laughs> stuff was interesting, but you had the information that I wanted. This is also interesting, but you no longer have the information I want. It was a fancy milk can. What more do you want, Sam? I want to know how the fancy milk can works. You remember how much detail I went into about Hedy Lamar's patents? <laughs> All I remember is that she was in 31 movies. <laughs> Sigh. I am sighing at you. I'm so sorry. Just keep talking. <laughs> so, unfortunately, she's, like, not the best business leader. She's, this doesn't go particularly well. And eventually... She's good at everything. Yeah, so the company eventually, you know, pitters out. So she's like, well, time to go back to what I'm good at, which is reporting. So she goes, she jumps right back into reporting... Just in time to cover, you know, the women's suffrage movement and World War One. She actually was one of the few women, uh, well, one of the few people in general, who got to go over to the Eastern Front and report directly. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. And she was also, predictably, super in favor of the women's suffrage movement. Uh, one of her articles was called, Suffragists are Men's Superiors. Wow, that's what every, like, anti-feminist man is scared of. Exactly! 
<laughs> Hats off to her. Yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, this is this is the end of our story. On January 27th, 1922, she dies of pneumonia, like, you know, everyone else in this era, uh, in New York City. And she is 57 years old, and she is buried in New York. You know, it would have been more like everyone else in this era if she died of consumption. Yeah. Well, fun fact, uh, Elizabeth Bisland also died of pneumonia. Aww. So I guess there was something going around. Yeah, I mean, New York's gross, and, like, everyone's on top of each other, and it's cold, so, like, makes mm -hmm. sense. That's what happens. And that is the story of one of the best journalists. Just ever. <laughs> Just ever? Yeah, according to me, who has researched a few journalists. Well, two now, for sure. Exactly. And Pulitzer was still alive, so I don't think he had a prize yet, but... <laughs> Pretty sure she would have won one if he was dead. But her and Gloria Steinem would have been friends. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Okay, it's my turn. <laughs> uh, that didn't sound ominous. Oh, it did. <laughs> so, Ellen, what do you think astrology is? Fake. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> this is gonna be fun. Okay. <laughs> Well, while I don't disagree with you, I find it fairly entertaining. Um, and I have a few friends from high school who decided that they wanted to find out my star chart recently. And therefore, I found out what time I was born. Um, and learned quite a bit. So, first things first. Astrology is... The belief that the alignment of stars and planets affect every individual's mood, personality, and environment, depending on when he was born. And that definition yes. comes from Texas A&M University, so. Oh, great. <laughs> but you might be wondering, how do horoscopes work? Now, my old favorite website from high school, How Stuff Works, did have an article on this, and I read it. So, there's something called a celestial sphere which is just like a sphere around the earth that you can cut into like certain subdivisions in order to figure out what placement the sun is at any given time and so your sun sign which is like the astrological sign that everyone knows it's the one that like you see in like newspaper horoscopes and stuff like that is the constellation that lies behind the sun at the moment you're born and so that changes about once a month because of like the degree by which the earth moves compared to the sun. All right, makes sense. That is not your only sign, even though it's like the one that everyone knows. Every planet in the solar system is also moving and has different constellations behind it at the moment you're born. And they all move at different rates. So like Pluto, on the other hand, stays in one sign for like 30 years. So like everyone in our entire generation is a Sagittarius Pluto because Pluto was hanging out in the Sagittarius part of the celestial sphere for 30 years. All right, so all millennials are Sagittarius, great. Yes, and I found out that means that we are free thinking. Yeah, yeah. take that, so. boomers. Exactly. <laughs> um, and it's believed that where each planet falls at the time you're born determines various things about you such as like your personality, how successful you'll be in life, things like that. 
And so if you know the exact time you're born, you can plot exactly where every single planet was, and it tells you a lot about yourself. <laughs> um, and so this is called natal astrology. There are three kinds of astrology. Natal astrology, which is what like basic girls do, which tells you things about yourself based on the time you're born. Um, there's interrogatory astrology, which is a further branch of astrology and refers to uh, making specific predictions or analysis about events within a subject's life. And uh, there's like how I can read palms. Yes, palm reading is interrogatory astrology. And then there's mundane astrology, which is used to examine world events and make predictions about national affairs. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> and so in all of this, I found that fairly easy to understand that whatever star constellation is behind a planet is your constellation for, or is your sign for that time. But they kept seeing refer references to this thing called houses. And I found out that Sagittarius is in my first house, which I had no idea what that meant. And I really wanted to find out. So I found a Cosmopolitan article called... Of course, the most incredible. Yeah, well, I mean, on they, astrology, it is the most credible. Listen, they really went downhill after Bisland was gone. <laughs> you know what? They are very good at sex tips and astrology. That is what they do now, and we just accept them for it. Uh, Bisland's rolling in her pneumonia-ridden grave. Yeah. So, the sky is split up into 12 equal subdivisions, and whatever sign is on the horizon at the moment of your birth is your first house and then it's in 12 equal sections from there and it depends what constellation falls in which one of those sections what house it ends up in and cool. so the because the earth's constantly rotating the houses change every two hours oh yeah and so the 12 houses tell you different things like whichever sign falls in your first house is how people see you so like my Sagittarius falls in my first house which is known for being a very honest and free-spirited sign which based on how many people told me I'm blunt in my life makes sense for me however I looked at your chart and Pisces falls in your first in your first house <laughs> um, <laughs> and Pisces are known for being like very dreamy and kind of like in their head a lot and that makes sense for you honestly yeah, <laughs> well, I guess the honest thing makes sense for you because a lot of people trust you and I don't know why because you're always up to no good. <laughs> I'm always up to great good. People think I'm the chaotic influence in this relationship. No. And that's because I'm a like quadruple Sagittarius, <laughs> which is a very trustworthy sign. <laughs> God, I can't believe the sky tricked people into thinking you're a good influence. <laughs> Honestly, though, like, while this is a total pseudoscience and hilarious, there's a lot of math behind it. Like, the angles at which the Earth and the Sun and all the planets revolve around each other. And, like, there is some real math that I was kind of impressed with here. Also... The so like what we do is known or what we like are talking about is known as Western astrology. There, a lot of ancient cultures had their own kind of astrology. So like there's a Chinese astrology, there's a Mayan astrology, and then what we do is Western astrology, and it's very interesting because 
I, this is just like an anecdote story, but I was talking to my cousin about this the other day, and she has back problems, so she does acupuncture for it a lot. And when she was pregnant with my little cousin, she went to her acupuncturist, and he said that she that the baby was a fire sign and like oozed fire sign energy pretty much. And my cousin was like, "That's not right. She's a Pisces, which is a water sign." And the acupuncturist was like, "In the Chinese zodiac, she's a fire sign." And my cousin looked it up, and he was right, which was like weird because he had no idea when she was due. There's so much we could go into further detail about this story. We're not <laughs> going to, but the fact that your cousin goes to an acupuncturist—that's really good for her back. The fact that the acupuncturist could tell by the unborn baby's vibes was good for people. <laughs> well. So my sun sign's a Sagittarius, and yours is an Aries, which means we're both fire signs, which are known for being, like, very passionate people, which makes sense because of who we are. I got a lot of passion. You do. <laughs> I mean, we started a podcast, so it <laughs> makes sense we're both fire signs. <laughs> While Sagittarius are known for being really honest um, and trustworthy, Aries are known for being, like, very confident leaders and motivated, which... Yep. Yeah. So... <laughs> That's kind of where our fire signs differentiate from each other. They're also a really strong pairing. I did do our, like, compatibility chart on CoStar. For anyone who knows astrology, CoStar is apparently where you go to find out everything about yourself in the app that my friends from high school made me download. Which I was then forced to download. Yes, which I then forced Ellen to download because I couldn't go through this alone. Um... <laughs> So, more or less, we are upsettingly compatible, according to CoStar. We have almost no challenges in our relationship, like, chart. We have a couple of, like, influx things, but really the only thing for us that is even kind of an issue is our sense of responsibility. I'm very responsible. How dare you? <laughs> I know, but you and me are a different kind of responsible. <laughs> but today's alignment chart for us says that we feel a pull towards each other while ellen can be faithful i we are each other's mirror today and the desire to be seen is the desire to exist let them touch your heart without trying to control what it means i don't know what that means that is yeah. our chart today so that was nonsense <laughs> that was nonsense <laughs> however and while all of this is nonsense it just was really interesting that so many different cultures, like, way back in the day, all thought of different ways to do this same idea, pretty much. And there's, like, so much behind it. Like, the original astrologers from Roman times were even able to predict the Chandler wobble, which is this phenomena that the Earth kind of wobbles on its axis that wasn't really proven until the 20th century. And back in 400 BC, the astrologers kind of noticed that it was happening and worked it into their charts. Wow. Right? Yeah, that, that's actually impressive. It's really impressive. No, they learned a lot about astronomy from astrology. Like back in Roman times, astronomy and astrology were the same thing. So a lot of like discovering planets and constellations and things like that were just like directly tied to astrology. Is that a wobble thing related to the wobble that the stars have with their exoplanets? Kind of. It's the same concept. It's just kind of the idea that, like, based on gravitational forces, 
a planet is often going to wobble on its axis. So like our wobble and their wobble aren't necessarily connected, but they are the same wobble just by different forces, if that makes sense. Wow. Did you hear about how NASA decided to wreck star signs by claiming that there was another one? Yeah, and did you hear how everyone just kind of went nah and continued <laughs> doing the same thing? Go back to the moon, NASA. Stay out of our astrology. So, like, technically, my sign changed when they did that, and I became the new sign. Ew. Yeah. But, again, no one's paying any attention to that, because you can't change something that's been going on. It's like it was a religion in Roman times. Like, you can't just say, oh, BTW, new sign. <sighs> But the practice of astrology, at least in the Western sense that we do, has been around since, like, BCE times. Like, the ancient Greeks had astrology. There's just a lot of really random fake science with it, which I really enjoyed reading about. I'm not going to lie. But I thought that just, like, it was really just a way to kind of explain things back in the day, you know, the same way mythology was. You looked at the stars and the stars were always changing and you kind of thought, oh, well, the stars change with the seasons and drought and blight and things all go with the seasons. So maybe there's something to these like star changes. And they were like, what if we map the star changes and try to predict how things happen? Which, you know, you you can't blame them for in a time before They're like, I'm feeling down today. I bet it's because that Mercury planet's doing something weird. Yeah. I mean, the fact that they were able to, like, notice and identify retrograde back then was insane. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, it's just, it's cool. It's fake science, but it's fun. Yeah. And you know what? Sometimes I really like being able to be like, today was a bad day. I bet Mercury's in retrograde. (laughs) Unfortunately, you will not be able to get me to believe in astrology because I disproved it. See, last year at the 2020 election, Mercury came out of retrograde like the day after the election. And I was like, okay, great. Once Mercury's out of retrograde, we're going to have an era of everything will be clear and the confusion will be over. And tell you what, I have never been more confused than the day after election day. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> it's only a few days after that we finally knew who was going to be president. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not something to live your life on, but every once in a while I do get a lot of joy from, like, reading my horoscope. <laughs> oh, also, there was a quote that I found that I really liked. The scientist Arthur C. Clarke once said, I don't believe in astrology. I'm a Sagittarius, and we're skeptical. What? <laughs> I am a Sagittarius, and we are skeptical. <laughs> I do like that energy. Right? I don't know. The idea that, like, ancient people were able to, like, figure out the angle at which the Earth and the Sun moved against each other and decided that's how, like, to predict the future, I respect. (laughs) And what else were they doing at the time, though? Didn't have much else going on back then. But, oh, and there are four kinds of signs. There's Earth, Air, Fire, and Water. You know, much like the bendable elements in Avatar. Of course. Um, So while you and me are both fire signs, which means we're passionate, there's also water signs, which would mean that they're kind of changeable and will like go with the flow. Air signs are kind of like free-spirited and chill, and earth signs are very like grounded. And I don't know, it's 
it's all interesting. That's all I really got for astrology. It's very interesting. It's kind fun. Of in, yeah. Kind of enjoyed learning about the houses because, like, the idea that the two hours you were born in, the earth aligned in this exact pattern was, like, very interesting to me. <laughs> and we actually learned something. Yeah. And it was about a fake science, but, you know. <laughs> it's an interesting fake science, though. And, I mean, it's a fake science that's, like, older than real science. Well, that's true, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and now, when people ask me about horoscopes, I can smugly explain to them about houses. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ellen. <laughs> so, Sam, what did you learn today? First. Yeah, I was about to ask you, and then I was like, wait, no. You did the yeah. story today, you have to ask me. <laughs> uh, today I learned about Nellie Bly and about... How to pretend like you're crazy enough to get into an insane asylum, which was incredibly easy back in the day. Yep, make some faces and then have an attractive nurse. Yep. I also learned how to get around the world in less time than a book character and how two women can do that because screw you, society told them they couldn't with yeah. one bag. <laughs> oh, I liked the big, like, middle finger to him of the one bag. Just a screw you with with her very little luggage iconic iconic ellen what did you learn today i learned about astrology which is very different than astronomy but but not in roman times <laughs> not in roman times i learned that there are different houses and that everyone has a star sign based on every single one of the planets which is fun and I learned that we are both very passionate people. Yeah. I mean, some astrologers believe that you shouldn't even bother, like, mapping your sun sign because it's, like, so generalized that that one doesn't even matter. It's, like, all the other signs that will tell you things about yourself. <laughs> that astrology sign's too mainstream. Okay. Yeah, pretty <laughs> Get much on the my level. button too mainstream, and astrologers are like, go for another planet now. <laughs> I follow my Pluto sign. Excuse you. <laughs> Sagittarius all the way. <laughs> yeah, and imagine an entire generation of Sagittariuses. Yeah. <laughs> We're living it. <laughs> Even that avocado toast. Yeah. Free spirits. Well, if you'd like to find us on Instagram, we are at KS Podcast. You can send us an email at chaospodcast21 at gmail.com if you have any episode suggestions or just want to tell us your thoughts. Please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we hope you enjoyed the chaos. Safe travels. Bye-bye. <laughs>
where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. We are a psychology and history podcast. And by psychology, my background is actually in social work. So I'll be talking about psychology, history, and sociology. And when I say history, I mean anything from people, places, and things to historical events and tragedies. And then we find intersections between our two topics and try and figure out what connects us all. Mm-hmm. New episodes launch every Thursday. You can find us anywhere you find your podcasts. You can also find us on social media at Pod Without an Odd. We're on both Facebook and Instagram. You can email us at podwithoutanodd at gmail.com or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Join us each week as we discover what connects us all. And if you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening.